Good morning and welcome to Spin Class. We're talking politics. Your host, Michael Fragan, here on the Nachum Siegel Network, nachumsegel.com, and on the NSN app. And I'm pleased to welcome to our show Naomi Stolzenberg. She holds the Nathan and Lily Chappelle Chair at University of Southern California Gold School of Law. And David Myers holds the Sadie and Ludwig Kahn Chair in Jewish History at the University of California, Los Angeles. Those are known as USC and UCLA for all our sports fans out there. Together, they have written a new book on Curious Joel, also known as KJ, also known as the town of Palm Tree up in Orange County, New York, uh, familiar to many of our listenership, familiar to almost everybody in the Orthodox community, called American Shtetl, the making of Curious Joel, a Hasidic village in upstate New York. And what does this have to do with politics? Well, you're all going to find out right now. So Nomi and David, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us. Great to be with you. So you wrote this book, American Shtetl, and the first question I would have is, I know that authors don't always write the titles, but is KJ, Curious Joel, a shtetl? I mean, at this point, we're talking about a mini city of over 30,000 people, astonishing growth, even in the last decade, going from 20,000 in 2010 to over 30,000, almost 33,000, according to the U.S. Census. Definitely probably dwarfs anything that was called a shtetl back in Europe. Yeah, right. Um, it's very different from anything that uh, was called a shtetl back in Europe for a couple of reasons. One, the homogeneity of uh, the community. Um, Shtetlach in, in Europe usually included uh, a mix of different kinds of Jews, um, from Jews, non-from Jews, um, young, old, uh, different political dispositions. That's not so much the case with KJ, at least uh, on first glance. Um, it is a community comprised almost entirely of Satmar Hasidic Jews, um, with a small smattering of others, uh, but overwhelmingly uh, Satmar Hasidic. Um, so th that's one way in which it's very different from the Shtetlach of Yur. The other reason, and this I think moves to the heart of your question, is that this is a shtetl that actually possesses local sovereignty. It actually is a legally recognized municipality in the state of New York. Um, the original vision of the person after whom the village was named, Rabbi Joel Teitelbaum, known as Rabbi Yoilish, uh, the founder of the Satmar Hasidic dynasty, um, had the vision shortly after he arrived in the United States in 1946 of creating not just a center in Williamsburg, which is the largest Satmar center in the world, but a place of refuge, a safe haven outside of the city, away from the seductions and allures of the city. And he very much envisioned that as a shtetl. Um, it turns out that that shtetl has become a legally recognized village and now a town. And so the question is, I think, an apt one. Yeah, and I would just add to that, um, you know, our book is very much... Uh, an intertwining of two narratives. So there is the story of the Satmars who established Kiryas Yol, but it's also a story about America and what was it that made America so perhaps surprisingly receptive to the establishment of Kiryas Yol. And so one of the things we're interested in and we really try to document is you, what you might think of as the imaginary shtetl. That is, the shtetl in not just the imagination of the Satmars and in the Jewish imagination, but the, the shtetl in the American legal imagination, political imagination, and popular imagination. 
So, you know, in 1964, Fiddler on the Roof debuts. Um, it really not only captivates the imagination of Jewish Americans and sort of taps into this nostalgia, it taps into the imagination of a much broader swath of, you know, I would say Gentile America. So um, a few short years later, 1971, you may have heard of the famous Lewis Powell memo. Um, Lewis Powell, this is very shortly before he's appointed to be a Supreme Court justice. And before that, he gave an address to uh, the Chamber of Commerce really laying out a blueprint for sort of the next wave of American conservatism, sort of. And in that same time period, he gave another address to the Chamber of Commerce, much less well-known, in which he invokes the shtetl, this very romantic, romanticized image of a holistic, organic, traditional community. Okay, well, actually, it's a great opportunity for me to ask you, why did you guys write this book? <laughs> uh, what drew you to Curious Joel? Uh, both of you are on the West Coast. Uh, why come here? You obviously spent an enormous amount of time there, and you have kind of paralleled the Satmar experience together with the American experience. But what drew you specifically to, to this? Was it the constant legal battles that came around the creation of Curious Joel? I mean, what, what was the hook that mm -hmm. got you hooked mm -hmm. on this subject? <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, it was, it was one legal battle, really the first legal battle that Curious Joel faced that first hooked us, that first drew us in. Um, and you take note of the fact, we should probably mention, we're not only co-authors, but we're married and <laughs> on the East Coast and living in Los Angeles, but we're both East Coasters. Um, and uh, in 1994, the Supreme Court handed down a decision addressing a challenge to the constitutionality of a law passed by the state of New York, enacted by the New York State Legislature um, and signed into law by then-Governor Mario Cuomo that had authorized the creation of a public school district within the confines of the village of Curious Joel. And a very interesting man by the name of Louis Grummet had filed a lawsuit arguing that this law was unconstitutional because it violated what we call the Establishment Clause. That's one of the clauses of the First Amendment that says that the state cannot establish religion. And he claimed that this was, in effect, an establishment of religion, state support for religion in violation of the Constitution. And that case made its way all the way up to the Supreme Court. And in 1994, the Supreme Court seemed to strike a blow against the village and the school district because it agreed with Lewis Grummet's argument that that law was unconstitutional. And that case is really what brought the community to wide public attention. That decision was widely covered. I was already, um, I'm a law professor, I was already writing about issues of law and religion, and I was very, very interested in the positions of in the position of religious subcommunities in the American legal landscape and the paradoxes, if you will, of um, 
of, of, of an, the American constitutional system, which is committed to a liberal vision of individual freedom, including religious freedom and religious tolerance. But there are ways in which that vision can be very inimical to the survival of traditional religious communities that do not espouse the values of individual and individual rights. So this seemed like a very interesting um, prism through which to look at that set of issues. And I'll just say a brief word about what drew me to the project. I mean, this all happened over the kitchen table. I would look over my shoulder and see what Nomi was looking at and working on. Um, and she was interested in all sorts of different uh, religious subcommunities, uh, evangelical Christians uh, who didn't want their kids to be exposed to the values of secular humanism, and a group of followers of an Indian guru in Oregon who established a city called Drajnishpuram, right. and a group of Satmar Hasidim in Kiryasiol. And I looked at the phenomenon of, Kiry of KJ and said, this is almost without precedent in modern Jewish history. It just is so fascinating. A, a, a community that has established a form of local sovereignty on the soil of the United States, which seemed to be a completely antithetical proposition. And as we dug deeper, we discovered it's actually uh, uh, not that unfamiliar uh, on the landscape of the United States, which has always provided a place of refuge for particularly strong forms of religious subcommunity. Sure. Well, I, I think we could go back to the original colonies. Uh, they were all, uh, particularly the Puritans chartered Massachusetts Bay Colony. Uh, you had uh, Rhode Island was also, uh, and then Maryland was a Catholic colony. I mean, but I think what a lot of people, or at least I think back, you know, just to give a historical question here, is Utah and the Mormons, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you have that phenomenon. Yes, we have the various other uh, religious communes, but Utah being settled by Mormon refugees mm -hmm. who came from the Midwest and who made their way west and really control all the levers, or we mm -hmm. can argue about how mm -hmm. much to what extent, but control the levers of power within the state and are numerous elsewhere, but Utah in particular. Can we maybe contrast that for a second? And um, I'll throw this, a little minor question at you is, uh, New Square came first mm -hmm. before Chaos Joel. So, uh, skipping over that one versus this one, I mean, I personally understand, but maybe you can explain for what you see as the differences between Curious Joel and New Square. Yeah, so one thing that's important to note is that um, that the communities that we're talking about, New Square and Curious Joel, um, are subject to many of the same American forces that affected all people, including in particularly suburbanization. So we have a development already as far back as the 1940s of newly arrived uh, Orthodox leaders um, deciding to establish outposts of their community or really reestablish their communities um, in uh, suburban um, uh, areas outside of the pulsating, throbbing urban center of New York City. Uh, Rabbi Aaron Cutler does it uh, in, in Lakewood. Um, Rabbi uh, Michael Dove Weismandel does it. I was saving. I was saving Lakewood for the end, but okay, we can get it. To <laughs> okay, well, this is the this is the old history of Lakewood. Uh, does it in, with Nitra, um, uh, sure. uh, the square. Mount Kisco. Uh, yeah, Mount Kisco. Um, the square Hasidim 
and Rabbi Tversky do it already in 1954 um, when they escape the seductions of the city and establish precisely that kind of safe haven uh, that many other religious communities have sought to establish on American soil. Um, and then, for reasons similar to Kiryas Yol, uh, decide to incorporate in 1961, or actually a judge allows them to incorporate as a legally recognized uh, village in the town of Ramapo. Um, they do so um, not because they desire to achieve this kind of local sovereignty uh, that we might assume that they're desperate for political power, but because they want to really control uh, the lived environment uh, in which they live uh, to allow for as robust uh, a way of living their life, uh, as they would say, according to the path of the ancient Israel, as possible. Um, so there's a template already in place for Kiryasiol. But what I think Kiryasiol adds is a kind of, forgive the expression, Satmar imperial ambition. Um, Satmar is the biggest uh, Hasidic group in the world, um, and there's a, a great deal of pride um, in its growth and, and size uh, and its capacity to expand. And it seems to me that um, one main difference was a leadership model that was dependent on very considerable growth of the empire, building up through not the Lubavitch way, outreach, but, uh, but uh, internal growth. Um, and I think it has to do with a kind of uh, grand vision uh, of, of Reb Yodish, of Joel Teitelbaum, that sort of charted this aspiration uh, of creating sort of an expanded Malchus Shel Satmar, a, a kingdom of Satmar, um, not a term that, that Reb Yodish himself uses, but others have ascribed to him, in ways that I don't think we see in Square. Mm -hmm. And to put it in sort of the wider American context, which will enfold your invitation to compare and contrast with Utah and the Mormon experience in Utah, you know, what all three of those examples show, of course, there are very important differences among each of the three examples, but what they all have in common is that they are illustrations of the American path, which is a private pathway to political empowerment, a private pathway to the formation of public entities, political entities, state and local governments, Meaning that the, you know, the, the sort of the, the how-to manual, how to, you know, the instruction book for a religious sub-community to form its own local, or in the case of Utah, even state government, is quite simple. You need two things. Private property, so you exercise the rights of property, the right to acquire and develop land, and the right to vote. Right? So the two quintessentially liberal democratic rights, the right to private property and the right to vote, for those communities that are able to exercise those rights, which of course when it comes to property means you have to have access to capital. But if you have access to capital and you, are, and you don't face the kinds of discrimination that would prevent some groups from from purchasing land, you, you acquire land, you settle land, and now you have a dense enough community that by exercising the right to vote can vote to establish its own, in the case of Curious Joel Village, same with New Square, and, and we sort of see that writ large 
with the experience of the Mormons in Utah, where ultimately it led to the creation of not merely a local government, but a state? I'd like to say when I describe the suburban Orthodox experience is that Orthodox Jews just do not fit neatly into the American suburban model. And there's not the, you know, the community barbecues, obviously public school athletics, football games on the, on the Saturday, all these things they don't participate in. And that, of course, leads to conflict, uh, not availing yourselves of the public schools we've seen in various cases, places that like I live in the Five Towns area, in Lakewood, New Jersey, as well as Ramapo being the most famous, but also with Curious Joel. And I think the, you've identified this seminal uh, event of separating the public school from the Curious Joel Public Schools from the Monroe Woodbury School District, which itself at the time actually, I believe, was supported by the school district itself, uh, even to, to separate those out, mm-hmm. uh, which is, of course, interesting because you, the New York State School Board Association took it upon itself to override its own members to sue Mm-hmm. But we can leave that politics aside. <laughs> um, that might be a little bit too inside baseball for most of our <laughs> listeners. But talk about how that you, you describe that as what got you interested in this case. But talk about how that changed the course of history with regard to Here's Joel uh, over the last uh, you know, two decades or more, two and a half decades since that happened, which in my, from my point of view has you know, kind of allowed them even more control over their own destiny and, of course, has led to an incredible growth in the community? Yeah, it's a great question. Thank you. I mean, first of all, it's absolutely true that it was the creation of the public school district um, that precipitated this lawsuit that, that really did change the course of the history of the village. But it also, it, it did so in a way that really left an imprint on American law. And what's so interesting about that is all of that was sparked by what might have appeared to be an extremely marginal concern, marginal issue. Namely, right, that this is a community, that, what do they want with the public school district? They don't want to send their children to public school. They want their children to receive a religious education, which in the United States of America has to be done through private schools. But, but, in 1975, the disability rights movement, right, an unlikely source of shaping the fate of the Sotmers of Curious Joel, the disability rights movement is really emerging then. And one of its very first victories is the passage of a federal law guaranteeing appropriate special educational services for every child with special needs. And that created a dilemma, not just for the Sotmers, not just for Orthodox or ultra-Orthodox Jews, but every religious community that patronized parochial schools. So in fact, it was you know, the Catholic parochial school community that was really at the forefront of wrestling with this dilemma that was created by the passage of this law, which was, to go back, right, the, the, the Establishment Clause, at least had been interpreted, <laughs> this is changing now, right? The, the, uh, 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 today, the Supreme Court is ever more receptive to a very different vision of how to interpret 
the religion clauses of the First Amendment. But in the, in the mid um, and late 20th century, the reigning interpretation um, precluded any public support for parochial schools, for religious schools. And so that created a dilemma because special education is publicly funded and publicly administered. So does, did that mean that children with special needs were not allowed to go to private schools and they had to go to public schools in order to receive the services they were entitled to and indeed that, that the state was obligated to give to them? Um, or was it constitutionally permissible for those services to be provided to children in parochial schools? That's actually a very, very hard issue, so hard that the Supreme Court has flip-flopped on it. And the political system has flip-flopped on it, as very well illustrated by the contrast between the solution that was devised in Curious Joel and the, you know, the, maybe the, the absence of a solution, what, what has unfolded you know, an interesting comparison in East Ramapo, right? So what happened in Curious Joel, um, quite serendipitously, um, uh, and uh, the, a man you, I think, worked for at one point, um, uh, who eventually became Governor Pataki, but at the time right. was- That assemblyman. He was, a, a, you know, just a new assemblyman, uh, unknown. He, it was actually Pataki who came up with this idea um, hey, why don't we let this community just opt out of the regional school district um, and, and, and have its own separate uh, uh, public school district so that, yes, the children will go to public school, so there won't be any you know, problem with violating the separation of religion and state um, but they will be able to be educated in Yiddish and in a cultural environment that's congenial to them. We will separate. By contrast, in East Ramapo, what we see is there's no uh, jurisdictional separation. The Orthodox community is mixed in with non-Orthodox and non-Jewish residents, um, but they too want uh, this, you know, the, the publicly funded the public funding for special educational services to go to the support of Orthodox children with special needs in private religious schools. And, you know, we can talk about what ensued in East Ramapo, but these are very sharply contrasting models. And notice that the, the ultra-Orthodox get, get criticized whichever way they go. In East Ramapo, they're criticized for, quote-unquote, taking over the public school district and, quote-unquote, diverting the funding to support the education of their kids with special needs in religious schools, the Somers did the exact opposite. They withdrew. They don't impinge on everybody else's public school and, and, and how the dollars for the district are spent, and they're criticized for being exclusionary and separatist. Both are messy models. Um, but the messiness of the Kirasil model, sort of the self-standing public school district within the confines of a Satmar municipality, as it were, is front-loaded. So it takes place at the beginning. The first 10 years of litigation were tough and hard and contentious. Now it's been established and it's resolved and it's a functioning school district, unlike the East Ramapo model, which is an ongoing saga and doesn't lend itself to that, that same kind of 
resolution. Yeah, so I would ask a question directly on to that point is to what extent, and this is a slight opinion question for, for, for both of you, is, and, and you mentioned that the Orthodox tend to get criticized no matter what path they take, but to what degree can we characterize their participation in voting or the public realm, whether it's legal uh, action and or exercising their voting power as doing just what everybody else would do versus exploiting the system and or or i.e. getting what they deserve or getting more than they deserve. Obviously, it's an opinion question, but yeah. uh, I, I want to tackle that. Um, you want to start? Go ahead. No, go ahead. Uh, so, I mean, it's it's both, right? That is to say, I mean, putting aside, are there ever, you know, are there? I, we need to draw a distinction between situations of corruption when people really are um, not playing by the rules. And does that ever happen in Curious Joel? Yes, it has happened. I don't know if it's happened any more in Curious Joel than any other community. Um, but for the most, let's put that aside. For the most part, the the what you know what is characterized as the outsized political influence of the of the Sommers, um, and which then translates in the ability you know politicians currying favor with them and delivering goodies like block grants and so on and so far so forth. For the most part, that is the consequence of playing by the rules. Playing, you know, according to the rules of the game. And what's the game? It's interest group politics and it's voting as a block and there's nothing illegal about that. And that is the American way. But even that, so, so you know, before anyone criticizes that, they, sh they should realize that what they are criticizing is the American model of interest group politics itself. I do think it's fair to ask, and I think in a way this community holds up a mirror to America to say, you know, how far do we want to go in encouraging individuals and individual groups to only think about their own self-interest, which is encouraged and supported by the American political system, as opposed to having finding ways to inculcate a sense of commonweal, to inculcate a sense of responsibility for those outside one's community, as opposed to um, acting with indifference to the welfare of others. But that's a community for American society at large, a yeah. question. I want to just pick up on that, that, that's, that's, um, that's last point of Nomi's, um, really the question of shared civic values. Um, we argue in the book that KJ... Uh, is the product of and sustained by um, it's playing the game of American interest, interest group politics as well as any. Um, these, are the, the, these are the rules of the game. They play by them and they do it extremely well. And that's very frustrating to people in the outside world who have difficulty marshalling the same kind of political discipline that KJ can when it comes to going to the ballot box. Um, they are able to heed the, the, the call of their leaders to get out. Um, and therefore, in some sense, they are subject to what we call in the book a process of unwitting assimilation of American legal and political values and norms. Um, the game of interest group politics, um, you know, uh, appealing to Gentile or secular courts, Arkot Shel Goyim, um, 
uh, evincing tremendous sophistication in choosing legal talent to represent your interests, um, knowing which legal venue to, uh, to seek to litigate it. All of these are forms of what we call unwitting assimilation, which attests to sort of the Americanness of the phenomenon of this shtetl. Um, in a more overt form of it, um, one of the most impressive people in Kyrgyz school, someone whom you perhaps you, know, you may know, village administrator Gedalia Zeganin, at some points refers to his community as a two-party system, sort of a decidedly American uh, phenomenon. But at the same point, you know, especially I think after um, the events of January 6th last year, um, I think we have to ask ourselves, what are the shared civic values that we want to inculcate in our children? Um, as Americans. Um, and that's a question, you know, which sort of pushes the pendulum somewhat back from uh, the side that says it is perfectly legitimate and commonplace to have a separatist enclave in the United States of America. It's perfectly acceptable. At a certain point, you need to sort of, it seems to, uh, to me, adjust the pendulum to account for the need to create a shared discourse. And with Satmar Hasidim, you know, that, that, that cuts both ways. They will say the United States is a machushal chesed, is a kingdom of grace that has been uniquely sympathetic to their interests. And they will also say, we very much imagine ourselves to be in Golis, in a state of exile. Um, and so somewhere between those two stances, I think we have to really, um, at this point in, in U.S. history, um, really insist on a greater degree of shared civic uh, values uh, for all. Okay, I'm going to let David have the last word because unfortunately we're out of time and perhaps we come back to do a part two of this amazing, talk about this amazing book, American Shtetl, The Making of Curious Joel, A Cidic Village in Upstate New York from Nomi Stolzenberg and David Myers uh, of USC and UCLA respectively. Thank you so much for joining us and uh, really if you people should go out Get the book if you want to know about a unique village, unique municipality that uh, you might you probably know about, but you don't know enough about. Well, thank you. It was great talking with you. Thank you, Michael. And that's it for this week here on Spit Class, here on the Knockham Single Network. Stay tuned for Jew in the City Speaks with Allison Joseph. See you next week.